You're listening to Ants Talk. Our guest today has a very interesting story, one that many people cannot relate to, though I think the subject interests us all. Richard A. Kears grew up in a mind-controlling cult referred to as The Move, founded by Sam Fife back in the 60s. At its peak, the cult grew to have 44,000 members. Richard has written a book titled Swindled by Faith, A Time for Reconciliation. Richard's story is very unique. Welcome to the show, Richard. It's so good to have you. Listen, I just wanted to ask some questions, if I may. Um, I, first of all, thank you for coming to the show. But may I start by asking about your childhood? Where were you born, your upbringing, stuff like that? I was born in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada, and I was raised in a church called the Christian Reformed Church, was a, which is an offshoot of the Dutch Reformed Church from Holland. Right. Um, now, I know that um, Sam Fife was a former Baptist preacher before he started the move. How did your family become involved? In 1970, my dad went down to a meeting in North Carolina and uh, most of us kids didn't know anything about it. We just knew he was going down there with a few other people from our church and uh, they apparently were down there at what they call a convention and they met with Sam Fife and a few of the leaders and when they came back, we left our church and joined the, the group. Wow. So was that an, so it was obviously a very immediate thing. Did you was it like relocating or did you continue to live in your own house? We lived in our own house for another two years. Yeah. And it was a, it was a gradual changeover where we left the school that we were going to and we started our own school and we kind of slowly pulled ourselves out of the, uh, the group of the circle of friends and people that we had grown up with. And we kind of started to become just an independent group that was very secluded in Southern Ontario. Right. And, and do you, can you tell me more about that move? Like, I mean, you know, I don't know how many memories you would have. How, how old were you at the time? I was 10 at the time. So okay, I have a lot. So you would remember it quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And what were your sort of feelings and emotions around that time? Did you sort of have an idea of what was happening? Well, like any child at the moment when it was happening, it was a very exciting thing. There was a lot of things on in our life there was uh you know we were told all good things and it was exciting it was a very uh amazing moment in time actually yeah i can imagine it would have been um and i suppose too you we're always just going to follow our parents aren't we really at 10 years of age you just exactly. do whatever they tell you to do <laughs> exactly. now i also know um that ex-members uh reported physical and sexual abuse did you witness such things well, there was there was a lot of different types of abuses in the move. It was there was a lot of physical abuse because the move really was very high on corporal punishment. So children were were spanked and children were slapped and even you know very very seriously abused. That many many times that I saw it, and I actually was part of, was one of those children. So right. uh, and and it. The difficult part about the group was that, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but the difficult part was that the education was that anyone that was an adult could could spank or, or uh, discipline any child. 
So you were no longer just disciplined by your parents. You were also disciplined by other parents and teenagers and other people that felt if you needed a licking, you got a licking, right? Wow. And it was okay. It was accepted because it was you were being trained and educated in becoming perfect. So that's that was the process. And what and what? Uh, so you, you you went in around ten years of age. What age were you when you sort of started to get out of it? I was 15 when I when I finally left. Uh, I when I was 12, we actually moved up to Northern British Columbia and we moved on to a commune, and we lived there for. Uh, in fact, my 12th birthday occurred while we were on the trip up there. Wow! Uh, and when we arrived at the farm, uh, there were no roads, there were no no houses, nothing. So we physically had to build roads by hand. Well, about 14 kilometers, which I think is about nine miles. Wow. Uh, and we had to, you know, put in wooden culverts and dig with shovels, and we made this road. And once we were arrived at the place where we were going to build our houses, we had to go in and get logs and build cabins. And the season in northern Canada, the weather, the winter, is, the summer is really only about five months long at the most. So by the time we actually moved into our cabin, uh, there was already snow on the ground. We'd been living in tent trailers. So it was very cold and very hard, very harsh. And so, like back then, I mean, how did, I suppose, did the people just, or the members, or the families, like your parents, did they just work, sort of earn money, and then that went back to the church as such? Is that how everybody sort of survived? Well, originally, there were several families that went up with us, uh, I believe there was about five or six families that moved up at one time. And then if, over time, other families moved in and they would bring their resources with them. So if they had money, they had to donate that to the group. Uh, once that money was donated to the group and was used up, after around the time that I left, the farms, all of the farms, there was eight farms in northern BC at that time, uh, or communes, they were allowing some of the young men to go out and, and get jobs and they would ha they were allowed to go out and work but they had to give 50 percent of everything they earned to the farm and then the remainder they could use for tools and clothes and equipment and stuff they might need for the jobs and a little bit extra that they had left over so 50 percent had to go to the farm so that's how the farms were able to sustain themselves sure and did you yourself did you see or meet um sam at all I met Sam a couple of times. Uh, I had a unique experience with him where I met him. Uh, I had left the farm already and I was living in Edmonton, and which is about a eight hour drive from the farm. And Sam, I was one of the first young people to leave the farms independently. Many people had left as families, but I was one of the first to leave as an individual. And so he came up from Florida and they picked him and one of the other elders, he and one of the other elders picked me up in Edmonton and drove me from Edmonton back to Northern BC in a little Volkswagen minivan. So I had eight hours of time with him where I managed wow. to speak and talk to him and hear some of his philosophy and ask him questions. And it was, it was really weird because he was such a superimposing uh, character when, it, when he was in a group. But in this little band, he really actually was just an ordinary, normal man. It was just really strange. He loved flying. He was a pilot. I loved flying. And we talked about airplanes for hours of that trip. We just talked about flying and airplanes and, you know, those types of things. And 
I think he was just stumped. He really didn't know what to ask me because yeah. I had, you know, so we didn't get into a lot of the serious subjects. So at that time, were you trying to leave and they were almost trying to bring you back? Is that? No, I, I, I had already left and I was already gone. But I think they just wanted, he really wanted to know why I left, what my concerns were. Uh, was there anything that I felt could change that would make it easier for children and young people not to feel that way? He asked a lot of those types of questions, but he didn't listen to the answers. You knew that he was, you know, it was just not, it was not, not computing. Ants Talk, the next best thing since crumpets. And what were the things that sort of niggled at you to get you to that point? Like, you know, what were your revelations as such? On the farm or after the fact? Once um, that led me to leaving? Yeah, led you to leaving. Well, I, when I was 12 years old and we first moved onto the farm, I was, I was very into it and I tried very hard to, to make myself feel like I belonged. So I, I went along with the religious aspect of it 100%, if not 110%. But my dad became very ill and he was in a trailer. We were living in a tent room and he was in a trailer next to us. And he was crying and crying and crying for days and, and the moaning and the crying and the pain. And they refused to take him to a doctor. And one of the older gentlemen came into our trailer one day and he said, you know, there's a pretty good chance your dad's going to die because he may not have enough faith. And I couldn't understand that. And that was the moment... That moment in time was the moment that I realized that there was no way that this was a God that I believed in yeah. because I just could not believe that, that God would put someone through so much pain, including us kids, because we felt the pain too. Oh, of course. Just to see if we were, if we had faith or not. So that's where my whole story, my whole book of swindled by faith originated. Because I really felt cheated. I really felt that this was just not a real God. And it was impossible for it to be. And so my story began at that point, and, uh, and it moved on from there. May I ask, what, what was the outcome with your father? Well, he survived. He survived it. And we were told, and we were told that he had obviously had enough faith. So, oh, dear. But, uh, but if, if you don't mind, there was another incident on one of the other farms where a, a, a younger gentleman had a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the kerosene coal oil uh, lanterns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you pump up. He had filled one up with this white gas and pumped it up and it blew up in his face. And he had third degree burns over probably, I would say, 50 or 60% of his body. And they refused to take him to the hospital. And he laid in bed for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, the infection set in and he died. And no one was ever charged and no one, there was never an investigation or anything. It was just the strangest thing. And those were the types of things that happened on those farms that, that just didn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was a test of faith. And they came back to us and said, he died because he didn't have enough faith. Well, I'm an adult now and I know that he died because he had third degree burns and he got infection. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about reality, right? So what were some of the things that you were taught back in the church that, you know, that I suppose today you look back on and think, well, like, you know, that's one, one example that you've just told us, but were there anything else that sort of that stands out to you that you just think now, like what was, or what was I thinking back then? Well, we were taught that all individual thought had to go, 
And it was called, it was called giving up of self. And so we had to, in order to become perfect so that we could rule with God when the world was destroyed, uh, we had to become perfect. And in order to become perfect, we had to get rid of self. So anything to do with self, we were not allowed to, uh, we couldn't have friends. We couldn't have, like, I mean, yes, we had acquaintances on the farm, but we never built deep friendships because boys and girls were never allowed to talk to each other. We weren't allowed to skate together, swim together, none of those things. And uh, we were literally taught stupidity, like that girls get pregnant if you go swimming together. Oh. Uh, you know, and, and when you're a 12 or 13 or 14 year old kid, that's really hard to, 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 to understand that concept. It doesn't make any sense. And so therefore, you, a lot of the children and a lot of the young people have a lot of trouble, a lot of problems with sexuality. They don't really, they grow up and they're confused and they don't understand what's right and what's wrong. And you feel guilt all the time. And, and that were, those were the things that really made me think that it wasn't for me. It was, uh, it was just a constant battle. I just realized one day that there was just no way that I could be what that God wanted me to be. Yeah. So I gave up. I gave up. I said, I can't do this, so I have to go. And I was prepared to go to hell because I couldn't live there anymore. You were sort of living in your own hell. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and what were your next steps after you did leave eventually? Well, I was, I was pretty lucky because my sister was married on the farm and there was a couple from Edmonton that came to her wedding and I met them at the wedding and spoke to them. And they told me they, they lived in Edmonton, and I had told them that I was uh, that I wanted to leave. And they had told me, if you ever do, give us a call. So when I went to Edmonton, and I was I, I made arrangements with them, and I I went and lived with them until I was old enough to buy my first car and get a job. And he actually he actually gave me a job for for a, a, a while working with him laying carpets and. Uh, I made enough money to buy my first car. By the time I got my driver's license, I already had a car. And so I was, you know, motivated to, to make something of myself. And I, I, I never wanted to live on the street. Or I remember the night that I left, my dad told me, he kind of snickered and he just said to me, well, you know, you're just going to become an alcoholic and a drug user. And, you know, that's just the way it is out there. That's what's going to happen. And it was always guilt. It was always trying to make you feel guilty and always trying to make you feel fear and scared, you know? And, uh, but even at that moment, I wasn't ready to leave. When I went into the house and I told my mother I was leaving, and she looked at me and she burst out laughing. Uh-huh. And when she laughed, that was it. Then I knew I had all, I had everything I needed to leave. Yeah. And w- w- what's happened with your parents? Well, my parents have both passed away now. And I actually wrote this book in uh, 2007. Right. But my family had asked me not to publish anything until after they were gone because they felt that I think this story is a big story and I think it's, it's going to be told and it has to be told around the world. And I think that my parents would have been very hurt if I would have told the story when they were still alive. And so, so they remained in the church, did they? They stayed there until they died. Yes. They never left. And, uh, I never was able to, I finally, the last couple of years before my mother passed away, I was able to build sort of a relationship with her, but it was just a telephone relationship. Yeah. We would talk on the phone and, and we never really were close, it but my dad, surface, I'm assuming. yeah, yeah. And my dad and I, we never were able to really recover a relationship. We tried, I went to see him when he was ill at the end and 
and he just was uh, he was very judgmental and very critical and everything was always like he was always right and everybody else was always wrong and the world was going to come to an end. He really believed in the move. Sound taught that people were going to live forever. If you were if you were in the move, you were going to you were chosen to live forever. You would never die. And he actually stood up in the Canton, Ohio Convention in 1975 or something like that, 75 or 76. And he stood up and he said, if I die, this physical body dies, then that's proof that I was a false prophet. And two years later, he was dead. He crashed his airplane and killed himself. Yeah. So, yeah. So we, my brother and I, we, we went to our dad and we said to him, you know, well, so now what? You know, this was this was the proof because he said himself, this is the proof. And Dad said, no, he said, Sam has achieved, had achieved such a level of perfection that God had to take him because he was too perfect for this earth. So they always had an answer for everything. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, it's, it's like some people need... Uh, I, not just religion. I mean, there's plenty of things that people, you know, take on in their lives, but some people really do need something to just hold on to, even if it's proven wrong. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a weird way of living for, for those people. I think. I really honestly believe that when you've been in something, you've got to realize my mom and dad joined this in 1970. Yeah. And, and when you look at it, 30 years later and you spent your whole life there. So, you know, how, how do you ever, how do you ever escape? How do you ever leave? Like you yeah. can't, can't admit that you were wrong. And there'd so. be so much fear in the leaving. It, 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 it'd be almost like leaving an abusive relationship. You know, people stay in abusive relationships for far too long, some forever. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You're hitting it right on the nail. I mean, that's absolutely the way it is. My parents, would never admit it. And when you saw them, they were superficially happy. But when they would talk about the world coming to an end, and when they would talk about, like my dad, I remember when Egypt was going through their, uh, what they called that, the Arab Spring. Yeah. And Mad was sitting in his, in his living room, and he actually had a TV in his last couple of years that he was, after mom passed away. And uh, he was watching this on TV, and he was saying, oh, my God, this is an absolute sure sign. There's going to be a nuclear bomb. The world's going to end. It's going to happen any day now. And he'd just sit on the edge of his chair, just almost praying for the world to end, not realizing that how many people were going to die if that ever happened, <laughs> and not caring because all he cared about was God's going to come, and I'm going to be ruling with God. You know, whoever's left, I'm going to be the boss. And it, it's just craziness, but it's reality. And they believe it so firmly that no one can talk sense into them. They can't accept the fact that it's not, doesn't make sense, let alone right or wrong. Mm. And how has it affected your life? Well, you know, I've had, I've had an interesting life. I've had a tough life. I, I had a really hard time. I've had a really hard time with relationships because yeah. When I was very young, I was I was told by one of the uh, one of the people on the farm. God spoke to him and told him that I was gay, and being gay on the farm was uh, absolutely taboo. You were going straight to hell. There was no curing it. There was no fixing it. You were that was the one thing God could never forgive you for. And uh, I knew I wasn't gay, but He told everybody I was. So they felt that I needed to have these demons cast out of me and get rid of this gay spirit. And, and uh, the, the thing is that I found I had years and years that I really felt 
I wasn't sure, mm. you know, and when I was married, another thing that I found too, when I, I married early, I was only 21 when I married and, uh, I didn't know anything about relationships and how relationships would work and how to listen and how to be compassionate and how to care for, for the person you're with, because we weren't taught anything. We never learned any of that. Yeah. Back when we, were taught, we were taught that girls and guys were not allowed to talk to each other. We were taught that, that, that sex was simply for procreation, no other purpose. You were not allowed to enjoy it. It was not supposed to be an enjoyable event. And so you were taught that this was bad and you were taught over and over and so much that you believe it. And so I had a tough time. I had a wife that was, that had some issues of her own, but she was a wonderful lady. And, and we, if I had known how to deal with, with, you know, things like, uh, depression and, and things like, like frustration. And if I had been able to be compassionate, I just didn't learn. I didn't know how I didn't know how, and I've learned that over the years. So my life has become much better and I have learned to be respectful and I've learned to accept and understand people for their differences. And, uh, it, but it, it's been a learning process. And I think a lot of people that come through these things have a tough time integrating back into real society. Oh, they would definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, you just, you just made me think then, I mean, even when I was growing up, we had the ability to sort of uh, experiment sexually with people that sort of gave us the clarity about our own sexuality and, you know, whether we wanted to be gay or straight or even to want to have sex or not have sex. And you know what I mean? Where you wouldn't have had those same opportunities because it was, you you know, it was sort of like literally beat into you that that's evil. So, well, understand, understanding a cult, especially a religious cult, because there's a definite difference between religious and and non-religious cults. Oh, they're very similar, but they're very different. Yeah. Uh, but in a religious cult, generally, uh, you're programmed to believe certain things are right, certain things are wrong. For example, in our in our group, girls had to wear their hair a certain way. They had to wear. They were only allowed to wear certain length dresses. They weren't allowed to wear pants. Girls couldn't ride horses. Men were allowed to ride horses. Like it was just, there were rules and rules and rules about everything. And it was just crazy. Right. But, but that's, that was, it was, it's about fear and it's about control and how they do that is they teach you about hell. Yeah. Hell is their tool because they tell you about hell and how terrible it is in hell and how hell is eternity. And once you die from this physical body, that's where you're going to go. If you don't become exactly what you're told to become, you don't conform. And so they programmed that into you so that years after I left, years after I left the farm, I was afraid to have a glass of wine because I knew that the minute that I put a glass of wine to my mouth, that was it. God closed the book and I was doomed. I was going to hell. And in hell, you could look up and you could see the people in heaven, all the people you loved and cared about. And you were burning and your skin was burning off of your off of your hands and the flesh was dripping off and you wanted a drink of water and they would look down at you and they couldn't give it to you because God wouldn't let them. That's hell. And how was your first glass of wine? <laughs> well, I would probably say my first bottle of wine. <laughs> um, I've got red stripe here from uh, Jamaica where I am at the moment. And uh, no, I, you know, you get over it over time. And unfortunately, though, uh, 
I think that that led to a lot of problems for a lot of young people that left the farms. They became some became alcoholics, some became drug abusers. Yeah. Uh, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen in the real world. It does. But I think if you look at statistics and you start putting the numbers together, you'll realize that the percent, the statistical number is much higher. Look, I think that you know, with anything, I mean, I'm, I have my beliefs. Um, but when I was younger, I was brought up around church and even with me to today as a 50 year old man with plenty of my own beliefs and experiences and etc. I mean, the thing still needles in the back of your head. It really does. It's, it's always there, especially if you are a believer. Um, I don't know about non-believers because I've never been that way where I still have my beliefs. So it still sits there niggling away. So I can imagine for you guys, in that sort of in environment, it's going to be very hard. Really, must be hard. Well, it it, it is a little bit. I'm I'm not uh, an atheist, whereas my most of my brothers and sisters and family have become atheist. Uh, the majority of them, I, not all of them. I'm not an atheist, but I'm not religious. Yeah. Uh, I I am very. Uh, I raised my children to be very morally astute. I've 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 taught them about how you have to treat people and and that's all based on the way i was brought up so i did i did gain some values by being there that's but the thing but the thing and because you have that right but i do believe that i also was lucky to be one of those that i was 10 years old when we went into it so i had already been in a normal family in a normal church environment with with what what do you call normal people they were not more normal than what we went into uh <laughs> And, and, and I've managed to even stay in communication with some of those people or regain re, some friendships with some of those people from before we went back into, before we got into the mood. So their lives, their lives were constant and they stayed consistent and they, but our lives were just a roller coaster and it was crazy. And, and our family is my personal family. I mean, very, very little closeness very little communication even amongst us. Some are okay with each other. Others prefer to just not have anything to do with each other. Uh, we don't have a family. Our family was destroyed by this. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I feel that that's part of the reason why I feel that I need to tell this story. I think people need to learn, number one, the damage that it causes, but they also need to learn to recognize when someone that you love and care about is being drawn into something like this. So you can intervene before it's too late. Yeah. Because, because there's, this is why my book is called uh, a time for reconciliation is because I had to reconcile with my past. I had to fix things so that I, I wasn't hurting anymore. And so that I didn't feel alone all the time and that I didn't feel guilty all the time. But part of reconciliation for me was also learning to understand that there was something that I could do to help other people avoid this and to help other people that are coming out of it or have come out of it that are having a difficult time integrating back into the world. I feel I've done a good job. I, I have a great life now and I'm happy and I feel good. So, That's and I'm only, you know, so I'm fine. But I met with a few people several years ago uh, and we talked about all the people that we knew that committed suicide and, and, and there was so many of them, and we're sitting here writing this list of so-and-so and so-and-so, and there were just, I think out of, I think we came up with 18 names wow. at the, just from, from a few of the farms in the States and a few of the farms in Canada that we combined together. Uh, 
So we weren't even looking at the whole worldwide po- uh, group of 40,000, 44,000 people. We're looking at maybe a demographic of maybe 2,000 people. So percentage-wise, there, there were a lot of suicides, and most of these were when they were adults after they had left because they couldn't reintegrate into the world. That's incredible. And, and it's sad, and it's wrong. Incredible. So, so I just feel that, that uh, we need to tell this story simply because I want people to understand two things. There is such a thing as, a, as cults. And those cults are very destructive, especially to kids, more so to kids. Adults can make a decision and kids can't. You're dragged into it. You said, you made a comment when you just started started talking to me. You said, as kids, we go where our parents want us to go. And that's absolutely correct. We don't have a choice as a child. We get dragged into this and we're stuck there. An adult can make that choice. But so I want to talk about kids that get into this, that manage to get out. And then I want to tell them that there is a life after this. And you can live a normal life and you can find peace and you can find uh, restitution and you can find reconciliation. You just have to work at it. It's there. And, and the world is not a bad place. And it's not just cults that say that right now. There's a lot of ideologies out there that say that yeah. it's a bad place. And it's terrible. We hear that so many times all the time, but cults really make it personal. Yeah not general it's personal and and it needs to it needs to be exposed and it needs to stop definitely can you tell us um how can people learn more can you give me the details to your book uh, your website anything like that that you can actually offer the the listeners well swindled by faith is available on amazon.com right now and and several other sites if you google it it's available um i i swindled by faith is about my life I have another book that's coming out that's called Silent Voices, which is going to be released in about three months. And Silent Voices is, only, is a very general book about children in cults that have all their life been told, you can't tell your story, you can't tell your story, you can't tell. I've been told so many times that I can't tell this story. It's crazy. I've had so many people tell me not to tell this story, even family members, family members that phoned People Magazine asking them not to air this. Wow. Because people are afraid. They don't want the truth to come out. This, this move, the move especially, is one of the groups that for some strange reason has never had a lot of exposure. But it's a very, it was a very destructive group. And it hurt a lot of people. Yeah, no, I mean, I, just researching the interview with you, I saw a fair bit myself and I was actually quite shocked because I'd never heard of it. Um, but there's so much information out there about it if you actually do look for it it's yes. um, it's quite incredible that it hasn't been heard more um and i think that you know going back to what you've just said it, it is it's essential that people hear learn know about you know the ifs buts and what's because people have to have a choice if they want to be in it or if they don't want to be in it and especially children and i think that what you're doing is amazing i re- i think it's it's a, such a great thing for people to be able to read and and fully experience learn and what you've experienced within what you live through. I think it's really good. Well, well, thank you. It's, it's been an emotional ride because I bet when I was in New York with the, for the interview there, it was eight and a half hours and there were several times that we had to break because I can imagine. just couldn't talk about it anymore, you know? And, and I, 
And what bothers me a lot is that this, this group is still in existence. They still have communes and there's still people living there and there's still people living, children living under this, under this, you know, iron fist, mm. uh, the, the type of discipline that they teach that that type of stuff is wrong. Like, uh, it, and you, you asked at the beginning of the interview about uh, sexual, uh, uh, abuses and yes, there were sexual abuses on the farm. There was, there was some very serious, uh, thing. There were many serious situations that went on. I was one of the lucky ones that managed to avoid that while I was on the farm. It never happened to me on the farm. It happened to me after I left the farm with someone from the farm who, who I was out of a job. I, I was 17. I lost my job and I, uh, he had a company that he was, and he was in the move, but he had his own company as a painter. And he invited me to come and work with him and paint. And I, we lived in this small little trailer at this gas plant. We were painting out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he fed me lemon gin. And he, he told me, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You're, you know, and I felt guilty drinking gin. Well, when I woke up in the middle of the night, he was sexually assaulting me completely, full out. And that added to my problems in life because I already was having difficulty with my sexuality because I had been told by the elders of the move who were the have all to be all that I was gay and I needed help. And then somebody, some man decides to do this to me and I'm feeling like, Oh my God, like what's wrong with me. And it took me until I was in my forties to realize that there was nothing wrong with me. That's how long it took. Like it was a terrible thing. And I lived with it for years. And when I told my father about it, he said, he didn't believe me. He absolutely said that this is not true. It didn't happen. We know this guy it didn't happen. So then my dad, it ate away at him for about two or three months. And then he phoned this gentleman and said, I want you to come by our house tonight. We have to talk about what happened to Richard. And the guy agreed to come to mom and dad's that night, but he never showed up. And he never, ever, ever, ever came back to church after that phone call. Wow. They'd never seen him or heard him. So my dad phoned me a month later, and he apologized to me, and he said, I know now that you were telling the truth. He says, if, he, if you weren't telling the truth, he would have just come to my house and talked to me about it. Yeah. And he did. And he said, I'm so sorry that I didn't believe you. And I said, Dad, you know, I said, it would have been nice if I could have talked to you when I was a kid when it happened to me. I was 17. A lot of people say, well, you were an adult. No, I wasn't an adult. I was an young man. And I was sexually assaulted by this man. And it shouldn't have happened. And I don't know, it just, it, it got to the point where I needed to tell the story. And I want people to understand that that's wrong. That's where I'm at today. Well, that takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage. You should be very proud of yourself. Well, I'm, 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 I'm not proud yet, but I will be at one point. You, you will get there, trust me. Because, yeah. I mean, it's people like me and people like the listeners that are going to be hearing and reading your book and stuff like that that are really going to take something from this. That, you know, they really will. I, I, I believe wholeheartedly in that. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for the opportunity to speak to you. My pleasure. And thank you so much for coming onto the show, Richard. We really appreciate your time. And um, I really urge our listeners to get on and check out your book and have a read, have a learn and listen and experience with some of the things that you've gone through and hopefully 
they will start to realize uh, that there are other people that are still caught up in these situations and that could possibly do with a little help. So, you know, the more we share, the more we learn. And the, the book was only published about a week and a half ago. Uh, so I don't even have a website up yet, but we're getting a website up. We're also working on setting up a foundation, which is going to be uh, Let the Children Speak. And that foundation is being set up in Canada as we speak. And a percentage of all of the sales proceeds are going into that foundation to help fund young people that have left or that are leaving and need support to get out of those places. Well, Richard, we're happy to post any of those details later on on our on our, all of our social media. So you can just let me know and I'm, I'm more than happy to put that up for you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate the chat. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Or day. I guess it's day. There. It is day. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Bye. Live, love, and stalk.